Greg Taylor. Uh, Randy is single. He has enjoyed speaking at several different venues throughout the Brotherhood and the United States. Uh, and we welcome him now to Mac, the most vaunted venue that he could speak at. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Randy. Come on up. All right, I. Okay. He's telling you you've got to turn it off. It's it's showing green. Okay, just turn it up a little bit. How's that? Everybody good? Can you hear it at the back? Do you want to? Okay, okay, okay. I want to keep you awake back there. Maybe I can. Uh, Make that work a little better. Okay. Um, I always feel like I should introduce myself because I know I'm a stranger uh, to you, so I carry this story with me to tell you who I really am. I got the opportunity to do a few years ago something that very few people ever get to do. I got to perform the wedding ceremony for my father. My mother died of a brain tumor. My father developed a romance with an old family friend whose husband had died a few years before. I got to do what no boy should ever have to do. <laughs> I got to watch my father date. <laughs> After that, they decided they wanted to get married. My brother and I didn't give our permission right away, but we started to think it over, and marrying off your aging parent to a slightly younger spouse is one of your better options. Uh, and then they did the ultimate dirty trick. They asked me to perform the wedding ceremony, and I didn't know what to do. I mean, so you, Dad, take Melba? That didn't sound right. So anyway, I'm, I'm performing this ceremony, and uh, I am happily single, and I was marrying these two people who had been married for 35-plus years each, and lecturing my father on marriage just seemed like a really bad idea. <laughs> so I sort of skipped the sermon and went straight to the I do's. And afterwards, my dad says, what, what happened to the sermon there, Randy? And I said, oh... You know, Dad, I just I didn't feel like I had any credibility in that area with you. He says, Randy, you're my son. You don't have any credibility with me in any area. <laughs> so I know that's how we are here. I don't really have any credibility with you. So what I'm going to do is pay attention to the Bible, which I'm guessing has very high credibility with you. Uh, preaching is 80% listening and 20% speaking. And what I want to try to do uh, tonight is listen very carefully to the text. And um, I have uh, these two short little parables back to back. They're actually doing exactly the same thing. And I'm going to spend my time this evening just trying to, trying to listen. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What 
are we supposed to hear? Okay, I want to start out by giving you a like uh, three minute, maybe five, uh, lecture on what the whole book of Matthew is about. And then I'm going to place my text in that context. Okay, I had a friend once who dragged me to the open house of their elementary school child. Raise your hand if you've had to go to one of those. Okay, I think the child was in first or second grade and I'm sure those things are probably awful for parents, but for somebody who's not a parent, it's worse. Uh, and so we go into this classroom, and there's this bulletin board, and the theme of the bulletin board is things we love. And uh, each of the, each of the uh, you know, six- or seven-year-olds has drawn a picture of something they love. I love. I love my dog. And I'm thinking to myself, I hope the family dog doesn't look like that. <laughs> Monstrous alien thing. I love my mom. Ooh, poor woman. But the one that caught my eye was this one that said, I love Torah. And the moment I saw that, I knew something about the kid. What did I know? I know they're Jewish. Because no Christian kid knows what Torah is. <laughs> I love Torah. The first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. Okay. Here's the thing about the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is all about presenting Jesus as the authoritative interpreter of Torah. Because there are lots of people who are claiming to be able to interpret the book of Moses in Jesus' day. There are the Pharisees, and there are the Sadducees, and there are the scribes. But Jesus comes along and is going to claim to be the one who can interpret Torah. Okay, what I'm wanting to know if I can get a bunch of Christians to agree about that too. Everybody willing to sign on as Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the Bible? Okay. Whatever Jesus thinks Torah is about, that's probably going to be uh, right. What's interesting about this is if you look carefully at the book of Matthew, what you will find out is there are five books of Matthew. Okay, you have some stories that are told, and then you have some speeches. And then you have some more stories, and then you have speeches. Then you have stories, speeches, stories, speeches, stories, speeches. And there are five cycles of that. And that's not an accident. Matthew has five books like the five books of Moses. In other words, Jesus is the new Moses. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, that is the whole of everything. When we listen to this parable, we are listening to the one who claims to have the right to tell you about God. Okay. If you go back and look at Matthew, you'll see that's what it's all about. It's all about Jesus being the authoritative interpreter of Torah. A little thing about parables. 
Now, I know you've been working on parables all, uh, all summer, so this is, uh, this is pretty easy and straightforward. Uh, parables always tell things on a slant. And I'm going to do my best to try to explain uh, why they do that. Um, let's see, let's do some, uh, we're going to do a little audience participation here, although I'm going to carefully control it. Um, I'm going to allow you to, um, to have a conversation with the person beside you for 90 seconds. And I'm going to tell you what I want you to talk about. And if you're a visitor here and you're sent by somebody you don't, don't know, it doesn't make any difference. This isn't going to be anything that personal. In fact, if you are sitting by your spouse, you are much worse off on this particular conversation. <laughs> okay. Now, you're only going to have like 90 seconds, so you have to allow both times, both people time to speak, which means you're going to get about 45 seconds uh, each. And here's the question that I want you to answer to the person you're sitting beside. What does it feel like to be wrong? That's what I want you to talk about. All right, talk to the person beside you. You've got 45 seconds. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, now, let's see. How many of you were sitting beside somebody who said, I really don't know yet? Uh, <laughs> um, there's actually a correct answer to that question. What does it feel like uh, to be wrong? Uh, the only... Uh, the only periodical magazine that I read regularly is the New York Times Book Review just because, you know, if you read off the bestseller list, it's the same people writing the same book over and over again with a different title. So, you know, I'm always looking for an interesting book. And in addition to book reviews, they occasionally talk to famous people about what they're reading or what they like. And uh, one of the people they interviewed several years ago was the president of Harvard. Uh, she's a very fine uh, historian. And uh, they asked her, if you could have the students of Harvard just read one book as they're coming in, the freshmen of Harvard, what would the one book be? And uh, she said, I would like them to read Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz. And uh, I had never read this book, so I quickly ran out to read it because I hate being behind the freshmen at Harvard. Uh, <laughs> And it is a terrific book about being wrong. Uh, it's also a very disconcerting book. Um, the most disconcerting story in the book is about a woman who was uh, sexually assaulted, uh, raped, and this very brave woman decides she's going to look her attacker square in the face so that if she survives, she can identify him. And so it won't happen to anybody else. 
and she survives, and she does identify him, and gets it wrong. Puts him in jail for over a decade. She got it wrong. Uh, among other things, Schultz answers the question, what does it feel like to be wrong? Are you ready? Okay, now I'm getting ready to do philosophy for just a few minutes, but it's going to be less painful than you think it is. Do you know what a philosopher is? A philosopher is a blind man in a dark alley looking for a black cat that isn't there. Okay. <laughs> if, if you're interested, a theologian's a blind man in a dark alley looking for a black cat that isn't there who thinks he's found it. Um, okay, here's what it feels like to be wrong. Okay, you've got to work with me here. It feels exactly the same as being right. Because you never have the experience of being wrong, you only have the experience of having been wrong. Because the moment you realize you're wrong, you're completely right again. Oh. In other words, all the people in this room think they're right about everything. Think it through. If I said, why do you hold the view you hold? Oh, because I think it's wrong. No. You hold it because you think it's right. And your experience has told you that you're sometimes wrong, but you have no idea what you're wrong about now because if you did, you would change your mind and you'd be completely right again. That's why it is so hard to change our minds because it always feels like we're right. Everybody still with me here? My brother and I have had an argument going since we were teenagers. The argument is about whether one stays drier walking or running in the rain. We, we even tried to do a few experiments uh, when we were younger, but we had no precise way to measure wetness, and they were inconclusive. But a short time ago, Mythbusters ran a segment on this. And we now know that you stay drier walking in the rain and not running. And this is information I thought my brother needed. I sent him a link. I said, you need to look at this. I just want to point out to you that all these years, you have been wrong about this. Love, Randy. <laughs> he sends me an email back and says, well, that'd be just fine, Randy, except you forgot which side of that argument you had. <laughs> because he can't admit he's wrong. Now, uh, telling somebody that they're wrong is often not the best way to get them to change their mind. Have you noticed that? Just makes you get your back up and even when it becomes obvious you're wrong, you find it hard to change your mind if somebody's telling you you're wrong. And parables are Jesus' way of sneaking up on us. 
parables are a way of turning the camera lens just enough where we see the world in a different way. Instead of Jesus pounding and saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, he tells parables. They're off-centered stories. Uh, They're stories that catch us off guard. Um, So the question that we ask, I'll go back. Um, and apparently there's no slide for this one, so I'll go for it. The question that we ask is, what is this parable doing to us? What is this parable doing to us? This parable about this treasure and this pearl, what are these parables doing to catch us off guard? What is it they're saying that we might not hear? Okay. He says the kingdom of God is like, let me just say a a little bit about the kingdom. Uh, The kingdom is the reign of God in the world. And God is already sovereign by right, and someday he's going to be sovereign in fact. Okay, God has a right to rule the world, but I don't know if you've been paying attention, it does not appear that God at the moment has complete control of the world. Have you noticed? You've got this chaotic world. And so Jesus comes along and says, okay, the world is God's. He's the one who has the right to be king, and Jesus comes to announce that what is true of God by right is going to become true of God by fact. That's what the kingdom parables are about. What happens when God reigns in the world. Okay, how'd you like my introduction? It's all preparation to listen to the text. We have the treasure and the pearl. Okay, I'm going to read them again so we can hear the words. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Are these parables good news or bad news? Yes. Yeah. Um, back when I was uh, a lot younger, uh, I used to occasionally get the opportunity to Peddle my religion door to door. Raise your hand if you've ever gone door knocking. Okay, there's a few of us who have. Um, And I've had some great experience. You know, back when in a kinder and gentler world, you could knock on a stranger's door and they wouldn't think you were going to shoot them and they weren't necessarily going to shoot you. It was a kinder, gentler time. 
And uh, I even went on a, um, a few campaigns where I would go to places I didn't live, and we'd knock on people's doors, and I'd get matched up with a partner. And, and uh, I was in Minnesota one time, and I got matched up with a partner, an older, uh, an older sister, who, let's say, her approach to door knocking was rather aggressive. And so we would knock on a door, and she would always lead with the same line. person would answer the door, and she would say, you realize if you died today, you'd probably go to hell. <laughs> Which led the people behind those doors to invite us to go first. Uh, <laughs> And I remember thinking even then, is this the good news? Okay. There is some bad news in these texts. But the text is mostly good news. Now, the text is tricky. You've got to really pay attention. Whichever one you like better. The treasure or the pearl. I'm going to go with the pearl. I like the pearl better. Just personal preference. This guy finds this pearl of indescribable beauty and worth. He goes and he sells everything he has in order to purchase that pearl. Now, what does he have? A pearl. What else does he have? Nothing. He's got no money to eat on. He's got no money to get a house with. He has nothing. He has no way to live because he has had to give up absolutely everything to get this pearl and the only way he can get all those other things is to get rid of the one thing that he wants, which is the pearl. Ooh, is that a tricky story or what? Hmm, same thing with whatever this indescribable treasure is. So I'm trying to think of some kind of way to say that where you might be able to hear it. What Jesus is saying in this catchy little way is to be a follower of Jesus Christ will cost you absolutely nothing. And to be a follower of Jesus Christ will cost you absolutely everything. And to understand that is to understand the kingdom of God. Um, for Jesus, the kingdom is such a precious thing that nothing else matters. Um, I try to think of maybe one other way to say this. Uh, missionary Jim Elliott, famous quote, it is no sacrifice to give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. 
It's no sacrifice to give what you can't keep, to gain what you can't lose. So Jesus says about the kingdom of God. Okay. I want you to uh, imagine you're part of Jesus' audience. Um, you got Pharisees, you got Sadducees, you got teachers of the law and the scribes, but for the most part, those people are not Jesus' audience. Uh, we read a lot about those people in Matthew, but the vast majority of people in Jesus' time are what we call the people of the land. All of those religious elites, they make up a very tiny fraction of the population. Most of the people in Jesus' audience and Jesus' day were desperately poor and were never going to be anything but poor. Surviving from day to day was their primary preoccupation. They were in a land that was occupied by a hostile power and they were taxed to death. They're just trying to survive. Um, when... Uh, when Jesus uh, preaches the Sermon on the Mount, okay, you remember that's the first book of Matthew, it's the first set of speeches in, in Matthew. Uh, you remember how the, uh, the sermon starts out? It starts out with a series of blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You remember some other things on the list? Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, um, blessed are the poor in spirit. What Jesus is doing, he's looking out to the people who are standing there and he's describing their life and then saying, in the midst of this desperately difficult life, you are the blessed and beloved of God. And that is the pearl of great price. If you have the love of God, nothing else in this world matters. And if you don't, nothing else in this world can take the place of the love of God. Uh, one of my uh, good friends is uh, St. Augustine. He died in 430. Most of my friends are dead-ish. Um, Augustine writes this famous uh, uh, beginning to his book, The Confessions, very early on. The Confessions is one long prayer to God, hundreds of pages. He says, Oh God, our hearts are restless and they find no rest until they rest in you. There is nothing else. This one treasure, this one pearl, is what we need for life. 
If you have that, it doesn't matter what else you don't have. And if you don't have it, it doesn't matter what else you do have. You've got to have this one thing, this pearl of great price. Um, I've often wondered what, uh, what parables would look like if Jesus were writing them uh, today. I think they'd sound somewhat different. You know, a lot of, a lot of the parables are, are sort of um, agricultural parables, and we're not, mostly not agricultural people. He'd probably tell different kind of uh, stories. And um, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite modern parable writers is this guy named uh, Peter Rollins. And I'm just going to read you one little parable that, uh, that he wrote, which is uh, kind of after this same point. Now, you remember, parables tell it slant. They catch you off guard. And if I do it right, it'll make you a little bit uneasy. Okay, that's kind of the way parables work. Okay, let's see how I do. You sit in silence, contemplating what has just taken place. Only moments ago, you were alive and well, relaxing at home with friends. Then there was a deep, crushing pain in your chest that brought you crashing to the floor. The pain is now gone, but you are no longer in your home. Instead, you find yourself standing on the other side of death, waiting to stand before the judgment seat and discover where you will spend eternity. As you reflect upon your life, your name is called and you are led down a long corridor into a majestic sanctuary with a throne located in its center. Sitting on this throne is a huge, breathtaking being who looks up at you and begins to speak. Okay, you think you know where this is going. My name is Lucifer, and I'm the angel of light. You are immediately filled with fear and trembling as you realize that you are face to face with the enemy of all that is true and good. Then the angel continues, I have cast God down from his throne and banished Christ to the realm of eternal death. It is I who hold the keys to the kingdom. It is I who am the gatekeeper of paradise. And it is for me alone to decide who shall enter eternal joy and who shall be forsaken. After saying these words, he sits up and stretches out his vast arms. In my right hand, I hold eternal life and in my left hand, eternal death. Those who would bow down and acknowledge me as their God shall pass through the gates of paradise and experience an eternity of bliss, but all those who refuse will be vanquished to the second death with their Christ. After a long pause, he bends towards you and speaks. Which will you choose? It's a very disquieting parable. Tells its slant. And when we really listen to this parable, it's a little disquieting too because Jesus says, if you want the pearl, if you want the treasure, then all this other stuff is, has got to go. It's baggage. But then there's the good news the pearl and the treasure are worth it. To be a follower of Jesus Christ will cost you absolutely everything. But it will also cost you absolutely nothing.
Um, there's uh, there's this when I when I'm when I'm teaching my uh, my freshman First uh, Peter, which is a book which for most of Christian history has been irrelevant, but is becoming relevant again. First um, Peter is about what it's like to be a Christian when you live on the margins of society, and Christians have sort of dominated Western culture, but I don't know if you've noticed, but that's not quite as true as it once was. And First Peter's instructions about how you live on the margins, how you suffer as being a Christian, may become relevant again. And as, as, as the writer is reworking Christian identity, he, he uses this Old Testament passage where he says, you are the dearly beloved of God. He's translating a Hebrew phrase. The Hebrew phrase is Am Segulah. I know that's why you came tonight. You were concerned about that. You are the dear possession of God. And the passage uh, in the Old Testament is about how God, out of his infinite love and grace, just decided to pick the Jews to be his people because he could. And I promise you, they were no bargain. He chose them out of his infinite love. And what Peter is trying to do is echo what Jesus is trying to do, is echo what the Hebrew Bible is trying to do, and tell you this one piece of great news, the treasure, the pearl of infinite worth, and that is... God loves you just the way you are. And there is nothing that you could ever do that would make God love you any more than he does right now. Now, what's that worth? Um, You know, when I'm talking to this freshman class and I have all these young ladies in my class and I know they're getting ready to enter into a world that is going to set an infinitely impossible ideal of what it means to be a beautiful woman and then put them down when they fail to meet it. And what they need to hear is this, God thinks you're beautiful. What do you care? what the rest of the world thinks. So I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but um, I overtaught this in my class um, one time. and A guy comes up after me and says, can you write Om Segula for me in Hebrew? And I said, oh, you must have mistaken me for a Hebrew scholar. Come to my office. And he comes up. I find it. I write it down. I hand it to him. I said, why are we doing this? He says, Tattoo. I said, let's pause for a moment, shall we? <laughs> Why don't you take this piece of paper down to the Hebrew scholar down the hall just to make sure that for the rest of your life your body is not saying something other than what we think it's saying. <laughs> and he comes back, got Ansegula on his arm. And, okay, you can like tattoos or not, but you know he's a ministry major. Someday some church is going to kick his teeth in. And he's not going to think he's worth anything. 
And he's going to look down his arm and see who he is. He is God's dearly beloved. That's the pearl of great price. And once you embrace that, the world quits having the ability to jerk you around anymore. Because there's nothing to compare with being loved by God. And there's nothing that you can have that will take its place. And no matter how little you have, you've always got it. It's the good news. It's why somebody goes and sells all that they have. Because if they have this one thing, amazingly, it's enough. I have no idea how you're doing. I have no idea how your church is doing. I do have this word for you, James Bryan Smith's line. You are a member of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is never in trouble. Your nation may be in trouble. Your church may be in trouble. Your family may be in trouble. But the kingdom of God is never in trouble. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore, world without end. Amen. Thank you so much. Amen, amen. Is that good or what? Good words to go away from. And so.